friends. Welcome back to another episode of In No Hurry. I'm your host, Cole Douglas Claiborne. So happy to be with you all again. The music that you're hearing is from my friend Ryan Allwart. Hey, whether this is your first time tuning in or you're a regular listener, I'm so grateful you're here this week because this conversation is one of the best we've had. My guest this week is Stephen Copeland, an author, writer, storyteller, a good friend, and truly one of the smartest people I've gotten to talk to for this podcast. Stephen is the author of Where the Colors Blend, and he's co-authored a number of books for some really big people, but what I think you're going to see is that he's also just an incredibly knowledgeable person, particularly as it pertains to spirituality and theology. This is one of the deepest and most theological conversations I've gotten to have on this podcast, and this feels really weird to say, but I really, really want to encourage you to stick around for the whole episode because I know I certainly learned a lot from Stephen, and I think you will too. Stephen and I were connected through a mutual friend last summer, and we've realized that our stories are very similar. We talked about some of the most heavy things we deal with daily, doubt, comparison, anxiety, death, and how our faith guides us in those seasons. We talked about how to allow those seasons to motivate us creatively and use our God-given creative abilities to share our stories. Whether you're a writer and are planning to write a book, or you just find yourself struggling to deal with some of these things, I truly hope this conversation is encouraging to you. I'm so grateful for this conversation, and I've been so excited to share this with everyone. I hope you find this as valuable and encouraging as I did. Here's my conversation with my friend, Stephen Copeland. Well, Stephen, welcome to the show. Um, You and I have talked quite a bit about writing and publishing, but... um, you had a book come out about a year ago, uh, Where the Colors Blend. What has the reception been like in the year that it's been out? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on your podcast. Um, and yeah, it's um, yeah, I've really enjoyed our conversations. Thankful that our mutual friend uh, Ross connected us, and um, it's great to um, always encourage um, one another. Us, us creatives need it. <laughs> Uh, But yeah, no, my my book, Where the Colors Blend, the subtitle is An Authentic Journey Through Spiritual Doubt and Despair and a Beautiful Arrival at Hope. Uh, It's a really long subtitle. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it came out a year ago. um, And yeah, the the response has been good. It was my first book in my own voice. um, So it took me about uh, six, seven years to write and put into motion. Um, and so it was a grueling process, but I, I learned a lot about myself. Um, and yeah, I mean, I really, uh, I, I, I wanted to write something that could come alongside people who had similar doubts in their faith um, that I had and perhaps a similar journey. And, um, you know, just to come alongside them and one, share inspiring stories that I gathered from these Paraguayan missionaries in the book, um, but then also allow those stories to perhaps meet them where they're at um, in their own doubts and their own questioning and their own wrestling, just as those stories met me where I was. So, yeah, it's a, it's a spiritual memoir. Um, I wrote it in my own voice. It's first person, um, but it's very journalistic in a lot of ways, too, as I gather these stories and interview these missionaries that really inspired me and kind of met me where I was when I felt um, where I felt like I didn't really know what I believed. You've done a lot of co-authoring with people, but what was, what was, I guess, different about this process of writing your own book? Like you said, it took six or seven years. So when you compare that to some of the other work you've done, what was different about this one? Yeah, I think the weirdest thing is just uh, talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> like, one of the things I love about uh, 
collaborating and um, you know helping people to share their stories is that I kind of get to play a background role um, and I you know get to you know lift them up and kind of be behind the scenes and help them to uh, hopefully share their story in a compelling way and in a way that impacts people so um, I, the weirdest thing for me has just been um, it, it's vulnerable to um, put yourself out there in that regard where um, I always wanted to share something in my own voice like it's a um, it's a dream that I had and um, it is it's authentically me um, and I think that's important for us artists to um, kind of lean into that and um, allow that truest part of our kind of inner being to be heard um, and to be experienced by others but then um, I'm a guy who just likes to create and then move on to the next thing. Uh, right. and then every publisher is like, no, you kind of need to market this thing. Um, and that, <laughs> that was a, that was a vulnerable kind of weird experience, you know, let, returning to what I said at the beginning when you answer, when, when you asked me that question, it's just, uh, it's weird to talk about it, you know, um, right. I'm used to not talking about the things I do. Um, right. but don't get me going. Cause once I get going, uh, I really get rolling. <laughs> <laughs> one thing, one thing that I've remarked to people for me in this process, you know, you and I have talked about the book that I'm writing, and it's a very similar topic to what you've written about. Um, as we both have worked in sports journalism, and for me, growing up with that, I shouldn't say growing up, but I guess being trained in that uh, field, my mindset was always, like you said, get a story, do it, publish it, move on to the next one. And it's kind of like this churning type of thing, like you're ready to churn out another story. I'm so used to writing something and publishing it right away. For me, trying to write a book, like I, I have spent probably over a year working just on my proposal. And it's been a it's been a really big learning process for me because it's it's more of a, a long-term laborious process rather than a quick thing. You know, what was I guess the the thing that you learned the most about yourself as you worked on this in terms of your creative process? Uh, obviously, this is a lot different than working for Sports Spectrum magazine where you worked for a while or maybe even it's other things that you've done. This is, like you said, it's six or seven years. takes a little bit longer. I mean, what did you learn about yourself during that process in terms of creatively? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, try to answer it. Uh, <laughs> I feel like there's still so much that I'm learning um, about myself. Uh, yeah, I think um, – so I – I experienced a ton of, uh, this would have been 2016, and um, I had just gotten back from Paraguay. It was my first time being there um, in the core of these stories um, that I had been gathering for a half decade. Um, and I was there at the heart of it, um, spending time with these missionaries. And um, I kind of returned from that trip thinking like, okay, like I know how to land this book now. Um, I know the, the arc of this book. Uh, and I'm like, this is going to be a huge year. <laughs> you know, this is going to be a massive year. I'm going to get it done. I'm going to share it. Um, I'm going to hopefully inspire some people and help them to feel less alone through these words and stories. Um, and, uh, that didn't happen. <laughs> that didn't happen at all. Uh, it, uh, it, it was just met by constant, um, rejection and this kind of floating and wandering and this, you know, going to bed every night wondering like, Hey, does this thing even have a future home? Does this thing even... Um, like, 
should this thing even be heard? Did I just waste my time? Um, and then that it's the in the all those questions you might notice they're all results focused questions. They're all performance focused right. questions, you know. And on a deeper level, you kind of I do think those questions are important to validate and acknowledge because oftentimes those are the things that um, control our motives and lead to us reacting to our own life, you know. Um, our own unmet expectations oftentimes lead me to just reacting to my life and it leads to this desperate kind of clinging um, where I attach my identity to the result or the perceived result or the idolized result of something. Um, and that was a, you know, I kind of, I really related to a lot of Merton, Thomas Merton's writings about the Desert Fathers um, during that experience because it did, on a much lesser level, it felt like I was um, wandering, you know, in the desert with um, completely removed from the world, completely removed from um, any potential um, destination in mind. You know, when, when you're in the desert, you don't know what's east and west. You don't know what's north and south. You're just there and you're forced to be alone with yourself and um, kind of reframe a different kind of fruit. So, you know, what what I found was that a lot of um, quote unquote spiritual fruit was um, kind of being um, birthed in my own life during that desert phase. Um, whereas I wanted this kind of uh, worldly uh, fruit. I wanted to get to the destination. I wanted to, um, I, I wanted to put this, my, my my efforts and my labor into motion, um, I think I had a lot to learn first about myself. Um, and yeah, so anyway, going back 2016, um, I had a completed rough draft for the first time. And then I felt another tug for, um, a book that I'd wanted to write for a long time. It was a, it turned out to be a book about a famous blues venue in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, and that was a really, for me personally, that was a really pivotal moment for me. I, I found out at the beginning of 2016 that the Double Door Inn was closing after 44 years of existence. And I kind of had this crossroads mentally where it was like, okay, here's the deal. You can either, you can either trust that you're a storyteller and that you're a writer and that you're a creative and that your creativity and your writing um, does not hinge upon the result of something, or you can um, wait till something maybe or maybe doesn't get published and then use that to convince yourself that you're a writer, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and it was, it was one of those things where it was like, no, like I really feel inspired by this place. I'd always felt inspired by that place um, ever since I moved to Charlotte. And I began writing the thing and working on the thing without even having a destination for my first one. So on kind of a developmental level for me, um, that was me kind of proving to myself that um, I did not need to latch my identity to the results of something, to my perceived performance of something. Um, to keep creating, to keep doing what I enjoy. Um, and, and honestly, I mean, I'm, it's still a struggle. I think it'll always be a struggle um, for me. But that was, I, I, I learned a lot about myself during that, where there were times where it was like, um, there were times during that process where 
it was almost as if like, oh God, don't, don't take me out of the desert. You know, like I feel free here in this space where I can't cling to anything. You know, I, I feel free in this space where, um, I can't use something else to convince myself of my own enoughness or my own belovedness. You know, it all, um, it all hinges upon, um, what is being born within me, you know? Um, so and I'm still learning that. That is a that is a constant. I think that's going to be a constant evolutionary kind of journey for me, spiritually speaking. Wow, that's that's a lot there. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just word vomited. Now you know what it's like yeah, to read I, one of my well, bo- one of my books. It's just word vomit. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, you could see how you get a lot of ideas. I think it's like that, for me. Whenever I when I've written, that's kind of what happens. Is it'll just start coming to me. It's like, oh, I like this idea. Then it comes to this. Then it's like, you realize all these things. I think for me, whenever I start writing, I'll, I'll unearth thoughts that I didn't know that I had, that I, I guess I knew I had them, but I had suppressed them, if that makes any sense. I mean, I have a big, long notepad in my phone of ideas from my own book that whenever I have it in my head, if I, if I don't write it down, I'm going to forget about it. And so sometimes whenever I do start writing, it comes back to me. But uh, I'm also prone to go long periods of time without writing. And so it's like I, I get into these phases where I'm super inspired and then I get burnt out from other things that are going on in my life. And then I don't want to focus on writing and then I get super inspired again. And so that's been my biggest struggle. And so in the seasons of life that I'm in now where I'm no longer teaching and I've got more headspace to think about writing, it's been a really refreshing time uh, just because I feel like I've got more space in my head to think creatively and not be so bogged down with other things. But um, I guess re- retracking here, uh, what was your, I guess, foundation of faith? You know, I guess walk me through, you know, growing up, where did you get your foundation of faith? And, you know, how has that progressed through the different seasons of your life uh, to where this book became obviously, you know, I guess out of some of that, but, you know, I guess walk me through your foundation to where you're at now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Real quick, going back to, uh, one thing you said about your own writing process. Um, I think that's one of the weirdest things about memoir writing is that you go back in time and you sit with a past uh, uh, scene, a past kind of blip in the storyline that is your life. And the deeper you go into, the more you're present with that past experience, um, the more truth you're able to pull out of it. Um, and it's just a, uh, it's, it's like therapy in a lot of ways. Like it's just, um, you, you never realize that there could be so much truth in that one little thing, um, that it could, uh, be so carnal, that it could be so vivid in your mind that you could learn so much from something in the future that you'd already experienced. So no, I really, I really liked what you said there. And it's, uh, it, it, it's it's just a really fascinating uh, process, um, and I don't think it's for everyone um, either because it'll just absolutely drive you insane. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's taken me so long to get where I'm at. But yeah, that that was kind of uh, you know what I learned about my writing process too was just that I needed to I need to give myself space. I need to give myself time, and you know I I had a about a two week span in early August where I was like so focused, nothing else was on my mind, and I think I knocked out like two and a half to three chapters of my book just in that time frame. And so, um, you know, as we go into the new year, that's kind of my, my hope is that I can kind of get back onto that grind again. But it's interesting just to hear, you know, your, your process and things that you went through too. Um, so 
yeah everybody's yeah, writing yeah. process is different so yeah um but yeah i was just saying that i think that's one of the interesting things that i've learned about my own creative process that um you've learned as well is that it is uniquely yours and it is something that you um have to own up to in a certain sense and it doesn't have to look like anyone else's you know it's yours it's a gift to you <laughs> um, right and if someone else is putting that on a timeline if someone else is putting that into a um, sales kind of formula or um, gauging it through a certain lens of success it's like um, okay that's fine that's yours um, but this process is mine um, this is something this is a stream that i get to swim in this is something that i get to get in the flow in um, and just have fun right <laughs> easier said than done right exactly <laughs> but yeah right. yeah going back to your um and, and i think uh my, my creative process has always been deeply related to my own spirituality so you um yeah you mentioned you asked me what my background my spiritual background was uh, and i think all of this is intertwined um but yeah i grew up catholic um it was a really good foundation for me um i feel like it um set me on the right path um and it introduced me to a lot of incredible people people who are still my best friends today uh, from there i um in high school i got involved in a non-denominational church in indianapolis um and um, a year after I was confirmed um, Catholic, I got baptized. <laughs> never, never was a great Catholic. <laughs> um, so I, um, I, I made that decision um, to get baptized, and you know I, I can say that um, I mean that was that was real that was a really pivotal um, experience for me because for the first time uh, I feel like I really felt something. I feel like um, I'm an emotional guy. Um, I'm a guy who often um, spin, gets trapped in my head. Um, and I was experiencing doctrine and theology and uh, intimate kind of uh, quote unquote salvation experience um, that I had never had an encounter with before. Um, and it was a really positive thing. Um, from there, I went to um, Grace College up in northern Indiana, and that was very much a Bible college uh, atmosphere, and I got a journalism and a Bible degree. And this was really the first time that um, I thought about some of these deeper doctrines, uh, theological, um, uh, different ideas. Uh, first time I really ever read through um, all of Scripture. First time I ever um, really sifted through um, these different books of the Bible and had a better understanding of um, where they were coming from, the cultural context. Um, yeah, just as uh, getting involved in the non-denominational church was transformative for me on an emotional level, um, going to Grace was incredibly transformative for me on an intellectual level. Um, from, there, from there, everything... Uh, <laughs> kind of went to shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I think somewhere along the line, um, I think somewhere along the line, my kind of performance driven and my perfectionistic tendencies um, just latched on to some really um, 
in my opinion, kind of toxic uh, theology. Um, and I don't even know where I got it from. Um, I'm not really, I, I don't point the finger or scapegoat anyone or anything for that. Um, I just feel like um, I just latched on to certain things that were incredibly detrimental to my psyche. Um, and I got to a point where my, my spirituality, interestingly, the deeper that I went into, um, my own Christianity, um, the more unhealthy of a person I felt like I became. I can definitely <laughs> relate to that. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, the, the two things that jump out to me, um, why it was so unhealthy was personal shame for one. Shame was a big thing um, on a deep kind of personal level, but then also on a relational level, um, I would say intellectual arrogance um, became a thing that really, really frustrated me um, in the context of my own relationship. So um, as far as shame, like I always felt like I, I felt like I was on a spiritual treadmill, you know, where... Right. I was running, 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 trying as hard, um, trying to run as hard and as fast as I possibly could to get close to this God, this object God, um, but really going nowhere at all. And I was absolutely right. exhausted. Um, it, it seemed like no matter what discipline I did, it wasn't enough. No matter, th there's always something that I could be doing that I wasn't doing or something that I was doing that I shouldn't be doing, it seemed. Right. And it was a performance treadmill and I wasn't going anywhere. And I just felt like God was kind of cosmically always shaking um, his finger at me and was just kind of looking down at me when I would inevitably, you know, face plant and slide off the treadmill and look up at God and beg for forgiveness. And I just felt like I had a relationship with um, God where it was just constant disappointment um, and an inability to get where I wanted to go and an inability to get where other people claim to be. <laughs> right. Um, and I think in that despair, I think in that, um, um, in a way, identity crisis, like, I think I hunkered down all the more, you know, I was, I, I looking back, I can see that in my, like, subconsciously, like, I was terribly unhappy and very um, unhealthy in my thinking and in my feeling as well. And yet, like, I was absolutely terrified to kind of let the uh, house of cards fall. <laughs> uh, so I hunkered down all the more, and I started diving into apologetics. I started um, really rooting myself into um, different intellectual kind of theory to justify the toxic things that I believed. <laughs> right. And then, I, and then that gave me the ego boost. Um, now that I reflect upon it, that gave me the ego boost to judge others and for uh, them not being right or believing the right things or um, living a similar lifestyle that I was living, even though I was completely miserable believing <laughs> and living the way I was living. You know? Right. Um, so it's it was, such a weird thing to be that self-aware, but also not really know what to do to fix it. Yeah. Well, I was, I was not self-aware at the time. Definitely. Like, I think it's only kind of going back to, and this is where it's related, like going back to what we were talking about, about creativity and um, writing and specifically writing memoir. Um, it, it was only years later um, that I could go back and be like, oh, that's what was happening on a deeper level. Um, and I was just going through reacting to things um, as 
people naturally do. You know, um, you 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 feel shame, and what do you do to get rid of that shame? Okay, I'm gonna get back on the treadmill and try to prove to God once and for all um, that I'm gonna get close to Him. Um, well, if Christianity is just um, if Christianity is just a means of getting close to an angry God who's always going to be disappointed in me, um, you know, then maybe that's not a faith that I want to be a part of anymore. Um, and that's what I eventually came to is that like, oh yeah, this, this isn't healthy. You know, pe people who don't believe anything at all. Some of my best friends, uh, they, they're living uh, much healthier inner lives than I'm living fueled by my faith. <laughs> so, so I mean that uh, I, I address a lot of that in the book um, and this uh, awakening to a more inclusive, more mystery rooted um, spiritual paradigm. Um, one that's uh, and I would call this my second conversion, I feel like. Right. Like my, right, yeah. I, I did, I don't want to, a lot of progressives, like they, a lot of progressive Christians, they distance themselves from the faith and then point the finger back at how horrible conservative evangelicalism was. And I do think sometimes that is legit and that is um, grief that needs to be validated. Um, uh, but at the same time, I, I see that experience for me, that first conversion, that decision to get baptized um, as incredibly transformative for me. Um, you know, Richard Rohr talks about how everything belongs on our spiritual journey. Um, and, and that has been true for me, even though there were things I needed to break down, even though there were some toxic things that my ego kind of clung to. Um, I can, I look back and I say, okay, I'm thankful that my theology there brought me to a dead end so that I could break it down, so I could yeah. awake something new. Um, and my second conversion, I feel like, was awakening to um, what my mentor said was a divine union with God, um, the, the unity that Jesus talks about in John 17, um, where... Uh, he wrote a book called Closer Than Close, Awakening to the Freedom of Your Union with Christ. Um, and one of Ross's friends, actually. Yeah. Um, he, I, I'd, never, I'd never even considered that before, that I was already as close to God as I could possibly be. <laughs> you know, yeah. that was never yeah. something that I had considered because I was in the performance paradigm. Um, I was hustling on the treadmill. Uh, and... So, so now I find myself more in the contemplative, mystical vein. Um, I find myself very, um, um, very inspired by these uh, different kind of contemplative, mystical authors like Richard Rohr, Thomas Merton, Henry Nouwen, um, these guys that are deeply uh, rooted in their tradition. Um, ironically, all Catholic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> circle. Um, yeah, yeah. Though I still consider myself um, evangelical, um, part, part evangelical, part Franciscan, we'll say. Right, uh, yeah. And uh, these guys are deeply rooted in their tradition, in the richness of that tradition. And yet it's an intimacy that they're introducing me to as well. So it's, uh, it's both and. You know, right, right. Um, I experienced an intimacy through evangelicalism that I hadn't experienced anywhere else. Um, and then now I find them introducing me to something 
um, that is daily. And that is, you know, that, that's the contemplative's path is um, getting out of those things in your head, getting out of those narratives, getting out of those uh, lies that you're telling yourself about your um, lies that contradict your own belovedness or your own enoughness and just resting in who you already are. And it's enough, yeah, yeah. you know, um, and that's union with Christ, I think. Um, but it's a constant and a steady awakening um, that I'll always be opening my eyes to more and more and more, um, I think. So, uh, yeah, again, I threw a ton at you. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> like the idea of doubt is something that scares a lot of Christians because we're like, doubt does not come from the Lord. And we're told we're not supposed to feel doubt. But for me, that doubt was the catalyst that led me to a stronger faith. And so I don't know if that was the same. I, I guess it was the same for you. But, you know, for Christians that are going through a season of doubt for whatever may have may have caused it, whatever led them to that point, you know, maybe I, th I think at some point every Christian, this is actually part of the book that I'm writing, but I think at some point every Christian goes through some period in some way of doubt or at least asking questions why do I believe what I believe? And for me, that was after my biggest faith mentor was killed by a drunk driver, he and his daughter and his mother. And it was the first time I dealt with a tragedy. And I just was kind of like what, trying to make sense of it. And it didn't make any sense to me because he was the, the worship pastor at our church, was the most godly man I knew. And it, for the first time, it was like, okay, if that could happen to a godly person like that, then we could die at any point. Yeah. And obviously we all know that, but it hit me much differently. Okay. And so from there, it went to like depression of missing my friend, then uh, questions. Then it became like, well, what's the point of doing anything? If we're just going to die, what's the point of me going to watch this basketball game? What's the point of me even writing this book? You know, I, at, the, at, at that point, I didn't know that I wanted to write a book, but like I was uh, like a month away from getting married when this all happened. And at that point I was or a month away from, from proposing to my, I should say I was a month away from proposing. And I was kind of like, what, what's the point of getting married? Like, why, why do we get married if we're, if we're just going to die and we won't be married in heaven? It was like all of these questions that were like, Holy cow, how do I wrap my head around this? And that was my period of doubt. Everybody's going to look different, but like for Christians that are going through that period, um, you know, I guess when they're dealing with shame or guilt for having those feelings, you know, I guess for you personally, what did you learn or discover to get yourself away from feeling that way? Yeah. Um, yeah. So one of the uh, one of the main stories and where the colors blend, um, the the primary missionary that the book is kind of centered around journalistically is a guy named uh, Norberto. And, um, you know, Norberto, um, guy from South America, give, he, he gave his entire life to um, missions. And his wife, who he met up at Anderson um, University, um, Anderson College at the time uh, in Indiana, went down with him <laughs> to be a missionary as well. So this, I mean, we're talking about uh, incredible sacrifice and an incredible faith. And long story short, um, he, um, one foggy morning, um, him, his wife, and their only son, um, they were killed in a car accident. Um, so in a day, 
um, Norberto's family, and they're, they're on their way to finalize the adoption papers for their newly adopted daughter. Um, so Norberto was driving, there's nothing he could do about it. Uh, Ana E, their newly adopted daughter, was sitting behind him. Julie, his wife, was sitting beside Norberto, and Timothy, their only son, was sitting behind Julie. And this, um, this truck just emerged from the haze. It was incorrectly parked on the side of the road, parked in a really dangerous place. And just like that, his family has dwindled to two. Um, and um, for, for me, um, not, not to, not, my intention was never to make that about myself, but I think these are questions that we all wrestle with, like mm -hmm. why? And for me, it was, okay, it, I was always told that God either plans things or allows things, <laughs> you know? Right, right. So, okay, if God planned that, God's definitely a psychopath. Uh, yeah. if, if God allowed that, then God's still a psychopath. You know, if I, if I take my future child to a um, store and just sit back while I let someone take them um, and I allow that to happen, that makes me a really, really bad father. Um, right. And these were the notions that I feel like I had to deconstruct. And you're absolutely right, man. I mean, I, I felt so lonely while deconstructing and breaking these things down um, and trying to get to the core of what I really did believe. Um, because I found that there was hardly anybody that I could relate to. Like I yeah. couldn't explain yeah. my feelings to people. I tried and there were people like the, the, the funeral for this family was absolutely massive. Yeah. Um, I mean, it just the girl was a phenomenal singer. She was in high school. So all of her friends were there. I mean, it was an unbelievable amount of people. So there was a ton of people that knew this family that I could talk to. But in terms of my own feelings, I felt very alone. Even like at the time, you know, my fiance, uh, now my wife, uh, I, her, her, my parents, my friends, there was hardly anybody that I could talk to. So you mentioned that it was a lonely feeling. It just was like, I can't even explain what's going on in my head. And whenever I do, I sound so crazy doing it that I don't even want to tell people. That's so, where I was at, at least. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's that's grief. That's the heaviness of, you know, going through something that no one should ever have to experience. Um, and and yeah, I mean, Anne Lamott, she writes, uh, she says uh, the opposite of faith is not doubt. It's certainty. Yeah, um, that's the opposite of faith. Uh, yeah. Doubt actually paradoxically takes you deeper into the intimacy of the faith experience. Yeah. Um, and, you know, whenever I heard the passage growing up about um, the doubting Thomas, you know, where Jesus um, rises again and reveals himself to um, both Mary's and then the apostles and then Thomas doesn't believe, um, I, I always heard that story uh, in my church background um, as one to discourage doubt. You know, like, hey, don't don't be like Thomas. Like, don't 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 be like that guy. Like, have have the yeah. faith to believe in the risen Christ. Um, but then I recently started wondering, like, okay, well, what if Thomas had just lied? Yeah. <laughs> what, yeah. What if, like, it, maybe maybe we would have a much different account um, in the Gospels um, if Thomas had just lied, and in order to um, regurgitate what his fellow apostles were doing, um, and yeah. in order to not confront the inner tension that he felt, would Jesus have then maybe called him out on the fact that, you know, like maybe would have said like, hey Thomas, like 
you know that I know you better than anyone else. Like, do you really think that I'm that small that I can't handle your doubt? Do you really think that I'm like that small that I can't handle your unbelief? Like, and what we see in Tom, I think it's his courage in this passage is that his willingness to confront his doubt and lean into it actually leads to a richer, intimate experience with the risen Christ, you know, Mm -hmm. where Jesus says like, well, the Christ says, you know, put your hands on my side, touch the holes in my hands. And I mean, this is um, so sensual in a way, you know, I mean, it is so, I mean, what a, what an incredible story that we get to read and be inspired by all because Thomas had the courage to confront his doubt. Um, right. and, and then there's that, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the guy's name, but there's that story in the old Testament about, um, the guy who wrestles an angel all night long. Um, and Samuel, maybe, I don't know. I'm, I'm blanking on the name, but it's like, what was that like? <laughs> you know, like, what, yeah. um, was that him? Was that him, like, was that him distancing himself from God because of his doubt, because of his wrestling? Or was he more deeply engaging with the divine through, again, I keep using the word, but again, we have an intimate experience here that we read about where, like, wrestling all night long, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, That struggle, that, like, in God's willingness to meet us right where we're at in that struggle. And I think that's ultimately what um, I awakened to was more of a God of witness, more of a God of union, um, rather than a God who's um, kind of a cosmic chess player, you know, allowing some pieces to be taken and then, you know, taking control of others. And um, now that being said, like, I can't deny that there have been times in my life where they've just felt deeply entrenched with the divine, you know, and I think that's all of life, um, really, if we can awaken to that. Um, But there are certain moments, I think we all have them where it's like, Oh wow, this is way bigger than myself. Like this, uh, this could not have happened, um, you know, through through my own doing. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I, mean, I I lean more into a God of withness and union now rather than an object God in the sky that one I'm trying to get closer to, and two I think He's either allowing or planning certain things in my life, exactly. and I'm just gonna get angry all the time, basically, because um, yeah. I'm conceptually setting myself up for failure. Um, with trying to explain a God like that, uh, in my opinion, but that's my journey. And, yeah. you know, like I didn't, uh, I wrote the book not to get other people onto my journey, but to help them hopefully feel more, less alone in their, that's, journey, you know? that's, that's the same mindset that I have because you have all these people that write these self-help books and I, I would not consider mine to be that for me, it was, this was a story that I wrestled with for over a year. Like, should I even write this? Would people even read it? Like I didn't go to school for, apologetics. I didn't go to seminary. I went to school for journalism to be a sports writer. I just had something happen to me that I felt compelled to use my skills that God equipped me with to write, to be able to share this. And I've had fleeting desires over and over again about, you know, should I do this or that? And, you know, I was, I sat for over a year and thought like every day I woke up and I wanted to write this book. And so that's how I knew like, this is what, what, what God is calling me to do. Um, you know, for me, like my journey was, I felt like I, needed to know the answers to everything. 
And I don't like when, like, this is actually part of my book. Like, I don't like, um, I don't like when there's any sort of uncertainty about things. Like if I'm fighting with a friend and there's kind of an awkwardness, like I want to resolve that really quickly. Like I just don't like having this unresolved doubt. Like I just sit there and I stew and I wonder and I worry. And that, that was like, this was that amplified by a million. And it was not understanding basically everything about the earth and the world and life. And it was a sermon at church where the pastor said, if you get to a point, it actually may have been Ross that said this, because um, he, he preached at our church, and it may have been him that said this, actually. But if you get to a point where you are, where you feel like you understand everything about God, that he is no longer God. And for me, that was like the first time when I was like, I don't know everything, I can't know everything, and I shouldn't want to know everything, because that's why he's called the marvelous mystery. There's things that I can't understand and won't understand, like why was my friend killed? By a drunk driver. They had hit a deer, I mean, very similar to your story. They had hit a deer coming back from a band competition. So they pulled up to the side of the road. This other young man who was under 21 had been partying all day at an IU football game, mm. was driving down Interstate 69 and just like, what are the, the odds of this? Like, smacked into the back of their car when they're waiting on the side of the road and mm. killed three people in the car. Like, like, the odds of that happening are so slim that, like, I could sit there and wonder why it happened all day. I'm never going to get an answer. And so that was really like, that's kind of, my, my book is not super profound in, in that sense that it basically lands there saying, look, you can't know everything. And that's why we have faith. And I think Chris Rice, the worship singer said this perfectly. I heard him on a podcast say this one time. He said, faith implies a level of doubt. Like you said, the opposite of faith is certainty. So for me, it's like, man, like I wasn't, like that far off by, I mean, I shouldn't say that far off, but like it's, it's normal for somebody to go through a period of doubt when they go through that. And I guess my book and my whole goal with that is like you said, to encourage people like, Hey, you're not alone. You don't have to have all the answers and like what you're going through is perfectly normal. So it's crazy how similar, like what we've gone through is, is you know, so close to, to what we, each other has gone through, but yeah, um, absolutely. Just even to the, down, down to the, down to the event that caused it, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. I, I, that's, that's, that's my journey. And that's ultimately where my book lands, which like, like I said, it's not really, um, not anything profound, but it's, it's still truth and it's still my story, which I feel like I need to share. So, yeah. um, that's, that's ultimately where I've arrived with that project. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, theologically speaking, um, and I'm a, I, I spend whole days, whole weeks, whole months sometimes just lost in my head. So I, I, I do see the value in, you know, something like theology and like it, it does inform the way I see the world, though right. I, I don't think that everyone needs to go that route. Um, but for me, like I needed to try to make sense of some of these things. Um, and uh, one of my favorite uh, modern philosophers, a guy named Peter Rollins, uh, he he, he says what you're speaking about, um, where you think you know all the answers about God, about the divine, he calls that a conceptual idol, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, um, I mean, it, if you, and you see a lot of um, evangelicals in particular um, do this with the scriptures, in my opinion, where they say like, oh, like we, like the scriptures tell us everything we need to know about God. Um, okay, like I, Sure, if you want to believe that, that's fine. And yet, like, what about all the spaces in between the lines? Yeah. What about all yeah. the white space within the black lettering? You know, like, 
there is a lot of mystery there. And if I ever rob the divine of mystery, then it is a conceptual idol. Um, and right. I probably am setting myself up for a failure in some way. Um, because, because I think I know all the answers, <laughs> you know, right. so, uh, I mean, Rollins, he says that the, um, he says something along the lines of like the, the growing intellectual, uh, spiritual seeker lives within the dash and the word atheism <laughs> where, you know, right. theism is always critiquing your atheism and your atheism is always critiquing your theism. And I don't, I don't think that's a path for everyone, but for me, it's been, um, it's been very helpful, you know, because it's taken me deeper into the mysteries um, that have transformed me, you know, uh, right. being unwilling to settle with my own conceptual idol of the divine and allow myself to critique that, take that deeper Then, you know, um, that has been a really transformative experience for me intellectually so that I can see things more clearly and hopefully love people better ultimately you know all of, all of this is just theory if it doesn't lead you know if it doesn't lead to loving um loving people better um right. and being there for people uh, but yeah i mean it's uh it, I, I had a similar feeling that you did where it was like why in the world did i think i knew all the answers about um or that i needed to know all the answers. <laughs> yeah or that i needed to know all the answers right. absolutely uh yeah it, but at the same time like i think it's human you know like i think it like Richard Rohr writes about how, like, as far as our the development of our own consciousness, our spiritual consciousness, we have to go through dualism in order to get to non-dualism. You know, like I, and this is, I, I don't have children, but I'm guessing this is true in child development as well, where, you know, there there is value in having a right or wrong. You know, there's value in the black or white. Um, and to, it helps you to see things clearly at that stage in your development but eventually, you know, that kid's going to have to break those things down and get into something that's more inclusive, more mystery rooted, um, spiritually speaking, theologically speaking. Um, but I don't think dualism is bad, you know, and I don't think non-dualism is better than dualism, but it's just the path. It's the path that I've gone on, you know, right, where right. Um, now it's more both and, but I don't think I would have ever gotten to both and if it wasn't either or first. Right. <laughs> you know? um, the, the dead end, our theological dead ends are a blessing they're a blessing to us because that yeah. expands, um, that expands our conception of mystery and it brings us to awe and wonder. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's perfectly put. I love that. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that I struggled with was I just was struggling to find, like, like I said earlier, like what was the purpose of everything? Even to the point of like, what's the point of working? Like, why do I spend my days working? Like, I got like, to the point where I was like, if I believe that, we are here to to bless the name of the Lord and to and to evangelize people. Why would I not spend every second of my day doing that? Like that was an actual thought that I had. And then I read this book right here, which people that listen can't see it, but this book called Garden City by John Mark Comer. I don't know if you've ever read this book, um, but John Mark Comer is one of my favorite authors. And this book is all about work, rest, and the art of being human. And it talks about our purpose, why we were created to work. Jesus worked, God worked to build the world. And it was all this stuff that was like, man, like, okay, we were like, we have a purpose here. Um, you know, working is part of that. And this was like, there are so many things that throughout this journey that, um, you know, I've just tried to, whatever feelings I've gotten, like if I've had a doubt or a question, I've tried to, you know, find scripture or find resources that would help, uh, would help 
justify that or help clarify that. And it's interesting you mentioned like people that are that only want to read the Bible. I have a friend that it was very adamant. Uh, he's a friend of mine, and he's a like on Facebook a couple of times he has posted that he doesn't read any books except for the Bible. And I'm like, dude, I've learned so much from people that understand the Bible better than I do. And he's like, well, the Bible shouldn't be hard to understand. It's Jesus's words. I'm like, it's very hard to understand for somebody that hasn't studied it. So mm-hmm. it's interesting that you mentioned that because it's like there are people that they only think that they need to read the Bible and nothing else. Whereas I like to supplement. I mean, it's, I was like, it's so different than listening to Christian music or listening to a sermon. They're taking the Bible and they're analyzing it. That's what a book does at least like a Christian living book does. So yeah, interesting that you said that because there are people that they don't want to supplement their, theolo- yeah. their theology with other stuff. Yeah, no, I I love uh, a passage that has really um, been helpful for me um, is the very beginning of John where John writes about, you know, the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word, you know, and it is, uh, the word is not the Bible. <laughs> John, John is not writing about the Bible there. Yeah. The Bible didn't exist then. Right. Uh, you know, and people certainly did not have a personalized copy of the sacred scriptures then. Yes. <laughs> uh, and so like, so what is the word? You know, what is the word? And I think he, I think John is taking us into a deeper, richer, kind of integrated experience, you know, where all of a sudden your, and this is part of the contemplative uh, prayer practice of Lexio Divina, but you're reading everything. Everything is the word, you know, this conversation is an experience with the word, with the Christ, with the Trinity, with the flow of this self-giving love that we get to right. experience. Um, you know, we are loved into existence and we get to rest in that and experience that and enjoy that through reading the incarnate word in all these different ways. You know, whether that's nature, whether that is the scriptures, that's fine. Or whether it's a punk rock song in my car whenever I'm pissed <laughs> off one day, but I feel so validated and affirmed in, in less alone in listening to that song. Right. You know, and I can go out and love people better because I feel you know, I, I, I have processed things emotionally, you know, and I mean, right. it's just, uh, yeah, I love that idea of just like, we, as humans, we get to read everything. It's all the word. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. Um, and that's so freeing to me. Um, that's so liberating to me. Well, I also like, I, I think of it as, and I don't know, like people may disagree with this, but, you know, I believe that in some capacity, there's a creative ability in everybody and that manifests itself in a million different ways and i believe that you know whether people use it for god or not their creativity comes from the lord and so you know i may be listening to an old blink 182 song where it's talking about all kinds of crude stuff but like you know that creativity came from the lord and you know it may not be the most christ-centered stuff but like i also don't want to be so closed-minded that i only know what's in my little christian evangelical circle like Angels and Airwaves is my favorite band. Tom no, Along, who's the Blink-182. Angels and Airwaves, yeah. Like, I, like I, I paid for meet-and-greet tickets to meet Tom Along this year, sat in the front row. Like, I, I don't care if he believes in aliens or whatever whatever else. Like, I, you know, people like what they like. And I just, there's so much beauty in hearing, like, people's just, the sharing and other people's creativity and other people's art. And whether that's Christian or not, you know, like, there's a lot of Christians that, they don't want you to read Harry Potter because it's witchcraft or don't want you to see certain movies because it's got other stuff in it. You know, it's like, I get it. I totally get that if you're of that mindset. But like, I just, I, I'm so like, I love 
what what anybody can bring creatively to the table like this sounds really pretentious but like i just like i appreciate anybody being vulnerable enough to share their creativity with us because it's really hard and i've learned that about myself you know when i was a sports writer i never really considered myself to be super creative but as i've kind of moved on into more of a i don't want to say christian sense but like writing about more things than just sports like i i do like i've i've unveiled more creative more creativity in my mind than i realized and so you just gain an appreciation for anybody's creativity so i'm kind of going on a tangent here but yeah. it's interesting that it's interesting that you bring that up because it's yeah I, I feel that i feel the same way like i just i don't want to be so close-minded to my own little circle of influence because i mean you see what happens with that in terms of politics in our country people only hear what they want to hear they only read what they want to read and then it creates this mindset that is so far from reality and so you know i'm not saying that i have to sit here and listen to slayer and some other death metal band but like you know there's no i don't think that there's anything wrong in exposing yourself to other avenues of art that may not necessarily be in your lane of christianity evangelicalism yeah yeah and, and i mean if uh <laughs> to your friend who only reads the Bible all the time, like if, if that works for him or her um, and that makes that person a more loving human being, then I'm not out to change people like that. Like I, I, I told people all the time when my book came out that like, I'm not a doubt evangelist, you know, and yeah. I'm trying to, um, you know, inspire some community of Christian mystics who are running around and, you know, um, just uh, worshiping the trees. You know, I'm not trying to do that either. Uh, you know, but I, I think we are each made uniquely um, to reflect something that is incomprehensible, to your point, the divine God. And it makes sense to me that there would be a bunch of different denominations a bunch of different um, kind of um, mental, emotional um, strategies that work or don't work for each person. And um, an integrated uh, perception of the word, you know, like Th Thomas Merton had a, a mystical moment on the corner of 4th and Walnut in downtown Louisville. Um, and it's, he writes about it in a book called uh, Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, and he says something along the lines of, um, I realize that I belong to all these people, um, and they belong to me. Uh, and he said that they were all walking along, shining brightly as the sun. Um, and, he, and then he has this line, he says, um, if only we could all see each other like that all the time, I suppose the real problem would be is that we would fall down and worship each other. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I love, I love his writings there. And I, I think I botched it a little bit. Um, anyone listening, like I really recommend reading um, that, the whole passage because it is just absolutely beautiful, but he's tapping into what Jesus talked about, in my opinion, in John 17, you know, where mm -hmm. it's this beautiful interconnectedness at the core innermost level of our beings. Um, and we all belong to one another. Uh, and we're, we're all, um, our paths intersect in different ways. And it, I think that's what, I think that's what Paul was writing about too. When he talked about the body of Christ, you know, it is this beautiful interconnectedness of experiencing God's love in each other. Um, and that can be Todd DeLong, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
it's it's such a guilty pleasure and i i can't help it but i just i love his music i love his create his creativity so oh, yeah uh, <laughs> So what what's what's next for you then? Obviously, we spent a lot of time talking about this book, but I guess what is next uh, in terms of do you have another book planned or that you're working on or other projects? I guess what's kind of next on your to do list? Yeah, so full circle. Now I feel like um, so now I'm trying to find a home for my uh, book about the blues venue in Charlotte that I wrote all the way back in 2016. <laughs> when uh. I having an identity crisis as a writer and whether or not I should keep doing this thing. Um, and I, you know, buckled down and I just trusted that, you know, this was to be pursued, that this idea found me in some way. And now I get to have the privilege of partnering with it. Um, I, so now I'm trying to find a home for that. So now I'm going back and I'm rewriting things and um, I, I'm trying to um, it, it's interesting to be removed from it and then dive back in and you start yeah. to see some of your creative blind spots, um, you know, things that I needed to write at that time because it was a year of, um, kind of substantial, uh, grief and transition. Um, there were things I needed to write then at that time as I was going to the double door in several times a week and interviewing people there. Um, but the reader doesn't need to read that now, you know, now right. it's time to take them on a journey. So right. um, that's what I'm doing, man. I'm reading a bunch of books about a uh, memoir writing. Um, and, and I'm just trying to, um, handle each rejection, <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> with, uh, with grace and not allow that thing to, um, n not allow that thing to contradict, um, my own enoughness or my own belovedness, um, yeah. or my resting in my own union with God, um, to allow the rejection to happen and pass and move on to the next thing. Um, and so, yeah, we'll, we'll see. I'm looking, looking for a home for it. Um, uh, but you know, if, uh, if I have more to learn along the way, as I did, whenever I thought that my first book was good enough to be published and it wasn't, um, then, um, take me into the desert again, you know, t take me in and teach me something. Um, and, uh, I'm preaching cause I don't think I yet believe it. Um, but I want to, <laughs> you know, I want to believe it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I want to believe that, that the process is unfolding a certain way, the way it's supposed to unfold. Um, but, um, it's only human to take rejection personally. I think <laughs> this is, this is kind of for my own benefit, but I'm, I'm going to ask this, you know, for other aspiring writers who might be working on their first book, you know, I, I'm prepared for when I do finish my book proposal and I'm obviously proud of it. And, and you know, I've tried to get some objective eyes on it so far that have given me really good feedback and really good edits because I told people like, I don't want you to just tell me that it's good because you love me. I want you to be honest. And I, I'm prepared for the fact that I'm going to get a lot of rejections and even though I'm prepared for that, I can almost guarantee myself that it's going to hurt and it's going to be, it's, it's going to be hard to not take it personal, you know, because you're so proud of something that you worked on and you, you want somebody else to see it the way that you see it. So, and I know that you're very adamant whenever you and I have talked that you're, you're still learning a lot in this industry, but if you had to give any advice to young aspiring authors that, you know, they're going into that process of, hey, I'm sending this out for the first time to agents or publishers. You know, when you start getting rejection after rejection, you know, wh where did you find the fuel to keep going? And for somebody that, 
you know, I hope this won't happen to me, but somebody who might see all these rejections and say, maybe this isn't going to happen. You know, what, what advice do you give them to, to say like, look, that may not be the end of the road. Um, I don't know, I guess, what was your, what, what was your, what did your process look like and how would you advise somebody that might be going through something somewhere? Yeah. Uh, Elizabeth Gilbert in her, um, book about creativity called big magic. Um, and it's kind of, I, my, I love that book. Yeah. I, my wife and I listened to that book. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. one of my favorite books. Yeah. It's kind of my creative Bible. And she, um, she's writes about how like creativity doesn't owe you a damn thing. You yeah. Know? Like, and I think it's human for us to, I mean, you, you spend years on something. Um, and that, that's the, that's the courage of an artist, you know, like you, you spend years on something that not only do you know if it's going to be read, <laughs> you don't know if it's going to be accepted for publication. You don't know if it's going to go in the trash years later. And yet still you dare to partner with the idea and allow yourself to be changed by it yeah. uh, and allow those in your inner circle to be changed by it. Um, and uh, so, I mean, I, I think that was, I think I, a big blind spot um, I had with my first book, and I'm sure it creeps up now too, is just that feeling that creativity owes me something because of all that I've invested in it. You know, all the sacrifice I've made, all the 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 moving around, the geographical shifts, the the professional shifts I've made that have been really risky, the um, money I've invested into these different projects that are important to me. Um, you know, like it, it's really tempting and it's human i think to you know feel like that thing now owes you something um and it's like nope creativity like spirituality is this is a different um this is a different landscape you know this is a different kind of paradigm that we're playing in you know like we in the world like you you invest in a property, you, um, you, you work at a company for 10, 15 years. And theoretically, theoretically, like you get a, um, you know, you, your investment is good and you make more money down the road and you continue to climb the corporate ladder and you rise and you get a raise and, um, you get a better title and an office with a window or, you know, whatever, right. whatever, whatever it might mean to you in your own context. Um, but, Creativity isn't like that. It's not this hierarchical kind of climb. It, it doesn't owe you anything. You know, it's something that I get to do. You know, I, I get to, I get to write four drafts of where the colors blend, five drafts of where the colors blend, on the sixth draft where the colors blend, um, change the title, basically throw it in the trash because it was twice as long as it is now, and basically start all over. Like I get to do that. Like what a privilege that I made it far enough to throw it in the trash, you know, right. what, what, I mean that, and I wish I could lean into that freedom more. Um, but it is part of the process and the process changes you. Um, so I, I remember I was really down, um, several years ago with the rejections. Um, and, uh, I reached out to, uh, Paul Young, the author of the shack, a guy who's always, uh, his, his work has just always really inspired me. Um, and I reached out to him kind of under the pretense of like, okay, I, my work is kind of in the same vein as his and like, maybe he can connect me with a publisher or an agent. Like maybe, maybe he can connect me with someone, um, yeah. since he really understands that circle that I want to be in. Um, and Paul graciously, um, reached back out to me and he just said like, dude, live within the grace of the day, you know, like 
and he he talked about how reality is just a river and we get to hop in and enter into its flow and we don't have to exhaust ourselves trying to swim upstream we don't have to exhaust ourselves trying to find a place to cling to to land a place to dock our boat whatever metaphor you want to use we just get to float you know we get to participate in the direction that it's going um and that's liberating that's liberating whether or not it ends with a um, agent or a publishing deal on the second book for me you know um, when i look back at the process for my first book um it was it was a creative process that was most transformative for me on an inner level you know because by the time it came out i was ready to move on to the next thing yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. You know, it's paradoxical because like it, it tortures you um, inside, but then once you finally do it, you're like, okay, next. Um, yeah. And yeah, man, I'm still, I'm, I'm still trying to live within the grace of the day and I'm still trying to, you know, partner with the flow and um, not allow myself to get too um, hung up on perceived destinations. Um, or idolize things in my mind um, of where I think I should be or where I think I need to go. You know, it's just, we, yeah. we get today, you know? We, we get today to be creative. What a blessing. <laughs> that's, I think that, that's such a good reminder to me because I, I have lived in a mindset where like, I mean, I'm guilty of this where I'm like, oh, well, you know, once I, once I send this book off and somebody, you know, somebody, uh, wants to represent it, then things are going to change. Like I'm going to, I have all these visions of like what life is going to be like if and when this book gets published. And it's like, I have to keep in mind, there may be no agents that want to represent it. And I have to be okay with the fact that I went through this process that, you know, the the faith that I'm having, that I, my, my, my whole book is about my journey of faith. And I've had to come to the realization that, you know, that may not end with the book being published you know, there's something that God might be teaching me just through this process. And I have to be okay with that. And so it's hard because, you know, as somebody uh, that likes to produce things, I mean, I think as, as a journalist, that's what we like to do is produce content and put it out there. You know, the idea that I could spend so much time on something and it not really be published and disseminated to the masses is a hard thing to, to grip with. But at the same time, you know, it's not it, it, that process can't just be about that for me. It has to be more about, you know, this is a big creative process for me. I'm learning a lot about myself creatively, and I'm also learning about God and my own faith through this process. So I think regardless, I mean, it, it'll, I, I will publish it in some fashion, whether that's through self-publishing or, um, you know, I don't know, an ebook or, or something. But, you know, if it doesn't go the traditional publishing route, like I like, I have to be okay with that. And that's something that has been hard to, to grip with, but I also don't know what's going to happen because I haven't really, I mean, there's no, there's not an agent in the world unless they listen to this podcast knows that I'm writing this book, you know? So it's, it's still, still a, it's still a, a baby as a project. It's not really that's been turned down yet. I just am aware that the odds of, uh, the odds of that happening soon are very slim and I have to be okay with that. Yeah, no, I mean, I, uh, <laughs> I remember I went, I went to the, uh, Abbey of I, I go to the Abbey of Gethsemane sometimes just south of Louisville um, where that's where Thomas Merton was a monk um, and one of the monks there has become um, a very good friend of mine um, he's like 
75, 80 years old. His name is Brother Paul. <laughs> and, and Brother Paul at Merton is a spiritual director. Um, and uh, the, the first time I went to the Abbey, uh, I wrote a letter to this guy named Brother Paul. I had no idea who he was, but I wanted to reach out to someone who might be able to show me Merton's Hermitage um, uh, in the woods. And uh, Brother Paul came knocking at my door and he took me to Merton's Hermitage. And as we were walking through the woods of this place, he just asked me how my silent retreat was going. We weren't being silent anymore. We were talking. Um, but, you know, he asked me how the retreat was going, you know, what I was learning. And I just told him, you know, I just told him about that wrestling that you just verbalized. Like, I... Like, I, I know that I am not the, the destination. I know that my identity is not, does not need to latch on to the results of something. Um, I know that creativity doesn't work that way, but holy hell, this is excruciating. Um, and he took me through the woods and you see Merton's humble little white hermitage um, and he just listened, um, listened to me as I was just going on these rants about how cursed I am as an artist, as a struggling artist. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, and we're looking at the Hermitage, and I'm staring at the Hermitage of this man who um, he also wrestled with a lot of depression and anxiety, um, you know, before he became a monk um, in his own writing pursuits. And we're just staring at this hermitage and Brother Paul quoted to me this entire poem by Emily Dickinson. Um, and it starts with publication is the auction of the mind of man. And so now, so now I'm looking at a hermitage of my favorite author who also wrestled with depression and anxiety in his own creativity. And now Brother Paul is quoting a poem to me by someone who I think she only had like 15 poems published in her entire lifetime or something like one of the most prolific poets um only saw like a dozen or two of her poems get published um, yeah. and that's freedom you know yeah that, that and and my ability to accept myself and have grace for myself in the tension of that you know whenever i do wake up in the middle of the night as i have the last six nights um, as this project is just eating at my mind, um, the ability for me to have grace for myself and be like, and reframe it and be like, no, there's not something wrong with you um, because this thing is just weighing on you. Like, you're passionate, you know? Like, right. that's freedom too. To be able to accept myself in the depressed, anxious states and still live within the grace of the day, even in that tension, um, that's very liberating. Uh, but it's, Holy hell, man! It is challenging, um, and it's yeah. cha it's challenging in a world that is all about destinations and all about climbing and all about perception. I mean, we live, we, it's we all live, about success and everything yeah, too. Image, all about image. Like, I mean, <laughs> perhaps the first generation who you know has you look through someone's feed and it is just that person's idealized image of themselves. You yep. know, and that is a. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that, but if I allow that to affect how I view myself, or if I allow that to um, pull me away from my own inerrant belovedness and enoughness and union with God, well, okay, that's okay too, but now I'm living out of a egoic place. I'm living out of a false self place, um, and that yeah. is not true self. I'm not operating out of a true self paradigm anymore. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, I'm, I'm latching onto something in the world to convince myself that I'm whole. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's easy to look at, like you post a picture or a video and it doesn't get as many likes as somebody else. And it's easy to start comparing yourself, you know, even just journalistically, you know, whenever I would write something and I, you know, when I worked in sports journalism, I'd, I'd write something and, you know, I, I was really proud of it and it didn't get the attention that I thought it should get. And I was like, oh, well, this story must not have been good. And it's like, no, like the story was good. It doesn't matter if somebody didn't retweet it. Like the story was, it, it, I had to live with the fact, like I knew what I did with the story and I knew that it was a good story and that kind of thing. And uh, I found it interesting that I think in some countries, Instagram has already started taking away showing you uh, how many likes a post gets. It would say like somebody's name and then like, hundreds of others have like this. It won't give you an actual number. And so I'm curious if that ever makes its way to America yeah. and how people respond to it. Because, you know, I, I hear this comment all the time. People say, you know, what would your life look like if Instagram was taken away or if social media was taken away? Where would your identity be? Where would your identity come from if that wasn't there? And I think what you're saying about just your own creative process, like, you know, your identity is not in the production that you do. It's not in the book sales that you have. It's in who God tells you you are and who God knows you to be and who God created you to be. And I think that's such a good reminder because in such a production-based world, it's hard to lose sight of that, especially if you don't have a faith in God. It's hard whenever you have a faith in God already. If you don't have a faith in God, it's easy to lose track of what is my identity because I don't have X, Y, and Z that this other person has. And then like there's a book on our bookshelf here called The Comparison Trap. It's like you get caught into this comparison trap where you are comparing yourself to whoever else and it starts to make you feel inadequate. And I've struggled with that in my own process of writing this book. You know, I told my wife, I was like, I don't want to write this book because I'm not a Bible scholar. I don't have anything new to say about this topic. There's plenty of other people that have written about this and probably written about it better than I will. And she's like, but nobody else has your story. Nobody else has your you know, situation yeah. that you've gone through. And, you know, I had to, I had to, that's ultimately what, got me to the point where I decided to finally write it because I was like, look, that's true. I mean, this topic, I mean, for instance, your, your book, very similar topic to what I'm writing about, but your story very different than my story. And so there's like, I, I talked to an author last week who had this great idea, you know, it's great um, mindset about this. There's too many people that have this scarcity mindset that mm -hmm. if you have an idea that's similar to mine. Like, I don't want to help you out because it's encroaching on mine. Whereas, you know, I want to be of the abundant mindset where it's like, look, there's place at the table for you and this person. You may have a book similar to mine, but there's still place for this. Like, for instance, John Mark Comer and Jefferson Bethke and uh, Rebecca Lyons and Emily Lay all wrote books that came out this fall that were all about eliminating hurry or hustle from our lives. All four of them wrote about the same topic. And uh, I believe that John Mark Comer and Jefferson Bethke are represented by the same agency. And so their agency is publishing two books by two prolific authors about the same topic. And what's funny was that they both uh, sent each other their manuscripts and then they just laughed. They had no idea that they were working on very similar books. They just laughed and they decided to collaborate. And they actually did a podcast together where they talked about the themes from their books because they overlap so much. And it's like there's space at the table for everybody and there's space for you know, your, like, your creativity and this person's creativity. And I just, I don't know. I, I love that whole mindset of like, there's no, uh, like you don't have to just be limited by like your own perception of yourself. Like 
just do what you feel is yourself and there's space for you in that capacity. It may not be being a New York Times bestseller, but there's still space for you to share that creativity, which yeah. has been learning that has been a really cool realization over the last year or two. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when, when all is grace, life can be abundant, you know? Yeah. Um, that's such yeah. a great, that's, uh, that's a great quote from him. That's cool that you've gotten to make a connection with him. And, you know, I, it was, you and I talked over the summer and, you know, just you, you were telling me, you're like, yeah, I had coffee or something with, with Paul Young. And I was like, whoa, that's, that's crazy. And uh, just the, the, the type of person he is because, you know, he wrote The Shack as a Christmas gift for his family. And just to hear somebody like him who is so prolific coming from such a, a humble story like that, it's just kind of an encouragement. Like you don't have to be some Instagram influencer to make a difference for people. You don't have to be a famous celebrity just to make a difference for people. You can be a humble person like that, that I'm going to write this story for my family and then, you know, takes off like it did. So just yeah. such a cool reminder, like everything is great. So I think it's just a great reminder. Yeah. No, I mean, you get to be you. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Like I, I think it's, I think it's weird how uh, in Christianity today, it's, um, it, it's all about, um, but somehow we've lost touch with um, the fact that Jesus uh, did more than just show that he's God, <laughs> you know, um, he showed us how to be more human too, you know, right. and to live the life that's been given to us in our skin, in our, in the unique hand that we have been dealt, um, and to, and to rest and enjoy the grace in that. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, it, it's just super interesting. Like what, a the, the humanity that Jesus displayed, um, you know, like the, the breadth of his emotions, the, you know, the, the passion, the rage at times, the deep anguish right. that, um, you know, like, oh, like that, that gives me space. Like I, I can awaken more to who I already am. You know, like right. I, I, I can, I can get off the performance treadmill, um, and just rest in who I already am and who I am is loved. Um, and, and, and then now try to see things through that lens. Um, yeah. and that's contemplation. Like that is, um, that is seeing, a reality that is more holistic and has not been hijacked by the different narratives that are spinning in my head, you know, right. uh, narratives that challenge me, um, and, um, cut me deeply in my own, um, perception of my own self-worth, you know? Right. Um, and, and I mean, that's where, you know, coming full circle, like, um, <laughs> is it any surprise to me that my previous spiritual paradigm that a performance focused perfectionistic God, um, that this being that I had, um, committed myself to pleasing on such a deep level gave birth in some ways to performance driven perfectionistic tendencies, <laughs> you know, right. Um, right. Thomas Burton says our our ideas of God uh, tell us more about ourselves than they do about God. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah that's <laughs> you know, so I mean that that's the I, I think that's where creativity and um, spirituality are intertwined. Like um, they affect one another. Um, they, they really do. And if and if you have a negative um, if, if you if you believe in a punitive kind of God, um, an angry God, a wrathful God. 
Um, yeah, of course I'm going to be hard on myself. I spent years beating myself up because God was beating me up, you know? Um, it's all psychology stuff. I'm not going to act like I know anything about that. Your your wife does. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, been, yeah. it's been really interesting to talk to her about that kind of stuff because she is so wise when it comes to that. Like, I mean, she studied it for three and a half years and it's true. Like, you know, there's just so many things like the way you put it is I can't even think of a better way. Like if you think of God as this angry, wrathful God that is always punishing you for doing something wrong, then yeah, you're going to respond that way. And, you know, for somebody, for a creative person, that can be very detrimental and it can be very harmful. And I think having the mindset that everything is grace and that there's beauty in whatever you're doing. Like if you write a, a 500 word blog post or a 50,000 word novel, like there's still beauty in both of those things. And I think that's kind of where I've had to, to, you know, I don't want to say have a realization, but you know, I want to, anything that I do, I want to be the best at that. And that's been really hard. You know, I was, I spent five years as a, as a head tennis coach and I was driven by the fact that as a player, I was never as good as I wanted to be. And so as a coach, I was like, well, I'm going to atone for this. I'm going to be the best coach that I could possibly be. And there's goodness to that. It motivated me to be a good coach. But I also, at, at times, like that idea of success, I was obsessed with when it was really like, no, let me, let me be grateful that I get to be a part of these kids' lives. And whether we win or lose, it shouldn't make a difference. And the, the head coach at, at Western Kentucky, who was on my podcast recently, he said the same thing. He said, my attitude should not look any different after a win or a loss. You should not be able to tell a difference in my personality, whether it's a win or a loss. And he's coming at that from a competitive standpoint, but I think it's from a success standpoint as well. Like whether your work is received heavily by people or it's received by one person and it makes a difference in their lives, like at least for me, I should look at it the same way and say like, God led me through this whole process and it was beautiful in its own way. And yeah, it may not have been a bestseller, but you know, that doesn't, that's not the end all. And that's, I think that's a, that's a great reminder for anybody that is working on anything creatively or is driven by success at work or anything like that. I mean, it's such a great reminder that you are loved. Your identity is not in your work. Your identity is not in your success. It's in who you are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think some, uh, Christians, whenever they read my book, like, I think they, I think they think that I'm, uh, um, advocating for like a lazy type of spirituality, you know, where you're already as close to God as you can possibly be. You don't need to do anything. You already are who you are. Um, and like, there is nothing left to be done. Um, you're like, you don't need to get, like, I think some people, um, misinterpret that as lazy. Um, but it's actually grace, <laughs> you know, it is, it is being changed by grace. So, you know, if I can, um, if I can work hard out of a space of, um, enoughness, and if I can flow out of a space of belovedness, um, one, I'm probably going to work harder, <laughs> um, because that's an infinite space. That's not an egoic space where I'm clinging to things, using those things to convince myself that I'm whole. Um, that's an infinite united with Christ space. Uh, but it, it, it's also um, it's also more authentic, you mm -hmm. know.
it, it, it's such a more authentic inner space to um, come from uh, rather than being so desperate and needy um, to uh, get the thing that I think that I need. <laughs> right. You know, I, I get to participate, you know, I get to participate in something interesting that's happening. Um, right. How cool. <laughs> you know? Right. And let's see where it goes. Um, but today I'm going to create uh, and experience the grace in that creativity. Uh, but yeah, I mean, again, easier, easier said than done. I mean, it is, <laughs> it, it, it is so hard. Um, it's so, so hard. Well, Steven, this was awesome, man. Like just thank you for sharing your wisdom. Uh, you know, you've got such, such great knowledge about all this stuff. And I, I learned a lot just from this conversation and I hope people that, that listen feel the same way for people that want to purchase the colors, where the colors blend, where can they find that book on your website or Amazon? Or I guess, where do they go to, to purchase that book? Yeah. Wherever, wherever books are sold, um, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, yeah, it's available, uh, in print and Kindle, um, and Nook as well. If you, um, go through Barnes and Noble, but, uh, yeah, audiobook hopefully coming next year. Um, but Will you yeah. get to narrate that yourself? I'm planning on it, I think. Yeah. yeah. I feel like it would be really hard to write a book and have somebody else do the audiobook. That's like I've heard authors talk about that where yeah. they were like they, it's just it, it didn't feel right for them. I think I forget who it was, but it was an author. I think it was his first book, Christian writer, and he said that somebody else like the the agency wanted somebody else to do the audio for it the first time. And it was really hard for, for him. Yeah. So I, I would, I would be very possessive over it. I would want to read it because it's, it's written in your own voice. And so you want people to hear it in your own voice. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll see. That is a, yeah, I know nothing about that space. Um, and I'm still, <laughs> I'm, I'm still learning. Uh, I'm still learning so much about my own creative process and, um, the, the different, um, shifting kind of pieces in the different industries. And like, I, I still have so much to, so much to learn, but you know, I, I do get to create and I get to write today and that's a blessing. Um, so yeah, man, really, really enjoyed it. So very, very encouraging conversation. Thanks for having me on. Y'all I'm just so grateful for Steven and his vulnerability in this conversation and I told my wife that I felt like this conversation was kind of everything that I wanted this podcast to be about all wrapped up into one conversation. And so I'm very grateful that he and I were able to connect uh, a little less than a year ago. And he's been such a great encouragement to me during my process of writing this book. And I've been able to learn a lot from him just in our conversations. So I'm super grateful for him to come on here. And I really hope that you guys found this as valuable, encouraging, and as knowledge filled as I did. If you want to know how to buy his book, Where the Colors Blend, there will be a link in the show description, uh, also on my website. Uh, you can also go to his website, which is copelandwrites.com. That link will also be in the show description. Also give Stephen a follow on social media. I'll have his links in the episode notes. Make sure you let him know that you enjoyed hearing him on this episode. If you need me at all, you know where to find me. I'm Cole Claiborne on pretty much any social media platform. I would love to connect with you. If you're a regular listener, please reach out. Let me know that you are enjoying listening to the show. Let me know if you have any suggestions, guest suggestions, things that you like so far. I just would love to connect with people that have been listening. But thank you guys so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. Each week has been a joy to bring you a different conversation. I feel like we've had a good variety so far. 
Next week, we'll have Jason Romano, who used to work at ESPN and is now the podcast host for the Sports Spectrum podcast. Sports Spectrum is a faith-based sports content site, so I'm really excited to share that conversation with you guys. Thank you all, as always, for tuning in. I hope you all have a great week. Find some time to relax and not be in a hurry, and we'll catch you next week.